Today on Flyover from NPR News, we're thankful for their service. Do we really know what American veterans need? I'm Carrie Miller. The U.S. has been at war for 16 years, but most Americans have never felt the pain of that conflict. A new generation of veterans is living next door and working alongside us, and we may barely realize it. Our divided nation can agree that we're grateful for what our veterans have done, but is anyone showing that gratitude in a meaningful way? So in this hour, I want to hear from veterans in flyover country. Call in and tell me where your community is getting it right. Is your employer or your college ready to meet your needs and embrace your skills? And then tell me where your neighbors need to step up. If you're not a veteran, what are you doing to recognize the vets around you? Call us at 183-FLYOVER-1. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News, a show about American identity in turbulent times. On this Veterans Day weekend, we're asking what it says about who we are when only a tiny fraction of us fight America's wars. Now, we may revere the idea of the American soldier, sailor, Air Force veteran, but we are deeply disconnected from him and her. So how does that disconnect shape how we think of America's involvement in international conflicts and who we are as Americans? As we begin, I'd like you to think about this. If you're in the military now or you've served recently, do you feel that Americans truly understand or appreciate what your service means? And how would you describe what it means to serve? Here's the phone number, 1-83-FLYOVER-1. That's 1-833-596-8371. We're beginning the show at WUNC in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, where journalist Jay Price covers the military. I asked him about the gap between the reverence Americans feel for veterans and many Americans' unwillingness to serve in the military themselves. I think one of the words that gets out of it is stereotype. <clears throat> you know, if, if you've got people kind of constantly coming up to you with this kind of robotic, almost programmed, uh, thank you for your service, how do you take that as a sincere thing? And, and how do they look at you as if you're not something in a box that's firmly defined for them already? Thank you for your service. And then you get the 22 number and this is something I've done stories on. You get that 22 number, you know, 22 veterans a day commit suicide. OK. That already puts veterans in a, in a pretty bad box right there. That stereotypes you as someone who's likely to commit suicide and the insinuation is that those are Iraq and Afghanistan combat veterans. And so if you've been in Iraq or Afghanistan, you've been in combat, people find out, they kind of look at you funny, right? They look at you. Is, is this guy stable? Is this gal right. stable? Right. Um, is this is this a, you know? They don't look at you like they look at just any other person they just meet for the first time. And you know, and in, and in truth, most of the people who served in combat are perfectly fine. Most people who served in war zones weren't in combat. <clears throat> and most of those twenty-two, the number isn't perfectly accurate. You know, it's a nice round number, but. Um, most of those are older veterans. And so, you know, I, th I think one of the things we owe veterans is to get at that number better, um, to get at why older veterans are killing themselves in such numbers. Um, you know, we've, we found that out as, you know, that, that, that's, that that's what the data shows. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, what can you do? What can you do about that? But, you know, if, if, if people are thinking, okay, if they're so disconnected from the service members that they have to view them as a stereotype, which is how you do things, as shorthand, as the way you understand life, as you kind of roll through it, you got to have some box to put things in as yeah, you conceptualize. Right. And so, if the box you're putting them in is like their damaged goods, <laughs> you know, that's that's just awful. People who have been diagnosed with PTSD, have kind of a wide range of problems and not, you know, not problems. It's a pretty complicated illness. Yeah. And it doesn't fit easily, I think, what you've just said, into some box. 
about how to understand it. Jay, I'm curious about what you think of the idea of some kind of national service requirement. I mean, would it would it resolve some of what we're talking about with this disengagement and this very small part of America who fights America's wars? Just as a as a journalist, I'm interested in how you've how you've thought about that. Well, you know, how could it not close the gap? Um to 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 have people understand what military service actually is, you know what's involved with it, just just the culture of it, even whether that's possible in this day and age is is kind of hard to imagine politically, um, unless there was you know suddenly a vast need uh, for more troops. Uh, my sense is that if anything, the need for troops is going to fall off with automation uh, and so forth. But if you, if you look in kind of popular media right now, there's a lot of discussion about how robotics and artificial intelligence are going to reduce the need for workers. Uh, the same is true for the military. The capabilities of the military are huge now and a, sm- a relatively small unit now covers a huge amount of turf on the ground or in the air, or however you want to measure it. Um, you have the the rise of drones. We The Marines have freight, had freight drones running in Afghanistan last time I was there, actually flying freight around, um, kind of a little-known thing. Uh, you're going to see more automation. You're going to see probably less, less need for ships and less need for troops. Uh, so it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that we'll have an actual need for huge amounts of of troops. On the other hand, even with a small force, you could do it with national service and definitely kind of close that cultural gap you're talking about. So, so do you think closing the cultural gap is important? It would certainly be a help to the nation, kind of culturally, with the, with the divide we have that's you know kind of left right too. How could it not improve things in the country to have people understand them each other better? That's journalist Jay Price from WUNC in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, where he covers the military. And on this Veterans Day weekend, on flyover here, we are talking about what it means to our sense of American identity. Um, when many of the uh, people who fight our wars are just a tiny fraction of America's population. And we're going to explore the idea that um, we revere this concept of the American soldier, the American sailor, the American Air Force veteran, but we are deeply disconnected from him and her. So if you're a veteran of Iraq or Afghanistan, I want to know how well you think Americans comprehend what your service is all about. If you're still in the military, what's the biggest misunderstanding about military service? I'd especially like to hear from women veterans and some of our youngest active duty military. If you're listening to the show, here's the phone number, 183-FLY-OVER-1. That's 1-833-596-8371. Talk to me about it on Twitter as well. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio, taking call right now from Mariah in Boise, Idaho. Hey, Mariah, thank you so much for waiting. I'm glad you called. What are you thinking about those questions that I'm asking? Um, I think that Americans do connect with veterans in a sense. I think that if you haven't served in the military, you don't quite understand. But I think that we're a lot more patriotic than we used to. We're in a war that isn't always being supported, but they're supporting the veterans. So I think that um, you're kind of wrong that way. Yeah? Okay. So in your community, in Boise, Idaho, what does the support look and feel like? There's a lot of veterans here. There's um, there's a guard unit out here at Gallant Field. There's Army and Air Guards, and I believe Marine and Navy Guards. So there's a lot of citizen soldiers walking around, so they are your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to help each other. Boise State has a huge veterans population. They have a vet success program there through mm-hmm. the VA that they connect with. Um, they've put their veteran services right next, next to the Disability Learning Center. So if veterans have PTSD, they're able just to walk right next door and get um, all their stuff figured out with the Disability Learning Services that connect with their teachers. So this is a community you're telling me in Boise that... This is front and center. The veterans' experience and the veterans' needs 
are are not ignored, are not disconnected from, as we've been talking about today. No. Correct. Correct. Okay. And that the VA Medical Center down here is one of the best in the nation. I don't always agree with them, um, but they do get their name out there. They are they have a patient advisory council, which I'm actually on. Um, we're tra- currently trying to, at the very start of it, trying to get child care there for veterans. Um, so when they come to appointment, they might have child care. Mm-hmm. They just built a new um, women's center for veterans. That's good to have your call, Mariah. Thanks very much for the view from Boise, Idaho. I want to take a call here from Michael in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Michael, you're a veteran of Afghanistan. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Tell me what you think about these questions, this this disconnect that we're exploring today on the show. Um, I, I think there is a significant disconnect. Uh, there's there's definitely a romanticism that's attached to, to service uh, that we see in, in pop culture and and uh, and how are raised, and I do get uh, the thank you for your service all the time, uh, but I, I don't think people, uh, when they make decisions on our wars, um, really think of the long-term debt. It's almost like purchasing a mortgage uh, when you when you send soldiers out. Um, people, when when they make these decisions to, to fight wars, should should realize or, or factor in that it's a a year, a, a lifetime obligation to our veterans. Uh, for their emotional and, and physical support um, as they as they come back as survivors, and I, I think that's kind of uh, uh, not recognized when when we uh, when we see service. Michael, what's it like when people come up and thank you for your service? Does it feel welcome to you? Uncomfortable? What do you usually say? It is welcome. Um, I, I'm done with it being uh, uncomfortable. I, I always say, "Hey, thank you. I appreciate it." Um, and I'm, I'm open to, to talk about my experiences, uh, but it, it does seem very rehearsed on both ends. And uh, but, but I, I do feel uh, uh, an honest poll. There's even though a very small percentage of us have actually served, uh, everyone's been ter- touched one way or another by by a veteran in their life. So there is there is still that solid connection. Well, what do you think is the the biggest misunderstanding of the people that are coming up to thank you for your service about what that service meant, what it, what it was? Uh, I think they they like to uh, make our our service two dimensional on on why we served um, and, and not recognize the different reasons that that we signed up, why we why we raised our right hand. Uh, for some of us, it was pure patriotism. Uh, for others, it was is just wanting to make an impact or or uh, uh, improve our families' uh, lives. It, it, if people can just see the the varying um, uh, reasons why we serve, and, and not just that we wanted to be soldiers. Michael, so glad for the call. Thank you very much. So, those are the views from two veterans: one in Boise, Idaho; one in Phoenix, Arizona. If you are active military now, love to hear from you on these questions. If you've recently gotten out. I'd like to hear from some of the women in the military, active and veterans, and some of our younger active military or recent veterans. It's 183-FLYOVER-1. Stay with us. I know not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join our conversations on Twitter. Use the hashtag FlyoverRadio. What topics would you like us to take up in a future show? You can leave us a message at 183-FLYOVER-1. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a show about who we are in turbulent times. On this Veterans Day weekend, we're talking about the fact that America has been at continuous war since we invaded Afghanistan in October of 2001. But in that time, and you may not realize what a small fraction it is of Americans who have served, less than 1% of us have served in those wars. The Average American knows very little about the veterans' experience firsthand. 
We're rather disconnected, and that's what we're talking about. And I hope you'll you'll listen in and you'll call in and you'll tweet in your own experience, particularly if you're active military or you've recently gotten out of the service. Our guest for the discussion, Melissa Bryant, is a former Army captain and Iraq veteran. She's currently the director of political and intergovernmental affairs for the IAVA. Melissa, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Brian Kasner is with us. He's an Iraq War veteran and author of The Long Walk. He has a new book coming out in March. Brian, really good to talk to you again. How have you been? Very good. Thank you for having me again. Nice to have you on the show. Melissa, when I saw that statistic, 16 years of war, a tiny fraction, like 1% of the American public who's participated in these conflicts, I got that sense of, of why I'm reading about this sense of exaggerated reverence, you know, for soldiers uh, about by the American public for members of the military. And I wondered if some of that is, you know, is guilt is spurred by a sense of national guilt about this. I'd love your view on that. Absolutely. Uh, At Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, or IAVA, one of the things that's uh, paramount to our mission is to connect, unite and empower the post-9-11 veterans, uh, and by sharing our stories with the public with to in order to bridge that civilian-military divide. Uh, it's important to remember that over 2.8 million men and women have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and nearly 15,000 are still deployed there. Um, and that seems like a lot, but yes, that's a tiny fraction of this country, um, especially considering that uh, over 6,500 have given their lives in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it's important to show our diversity, to show our, um, our our makeup, if you will, because we're not a monolithic group mm-hmm. within uh, those of us who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and continue to show the public uh, our very human story so that they can connect with us. Uh, that's something that's been lost since um, my father's wars, um, who was a Vietnam vet, and his father who served in World War II before him. Brian, do you think there is that this is about a lack of interest? It's about a lack of familiarity and knowledge. Where do you think this? Yes, we revere what they did, but we're really not all that interested in the day-to-day experience, particularly when they come back and you know, they have needs, which I which you've written about and I know you've experienced. Yeah, I, I'm afraid that um, people are just sick of the war and, and I don't blame them. It's 16 years is a long time to pay attention to something uh, as miserable and frustrating uh, and at times exasperating um, as as these wars have been. I'm afraid that all too often in this country that the war is seen as something that the military did mm-hmm. or our veterans did but not something that the country did. So meaning what or con- specifically? Or continues to do. Yeah, were, that they're just like separate from it, that it was, it was something that happened uh, or is continuing to happen a long way away that doesn't really mean something to me in Des Moines, Iowa, as I go to the store, that it's, it's, maybe it's tragic and I feel bad for the veterans. And we, we have this dichotomy where veterans are victims or heroes and it's hard to find some like middle nuanced space, which is, of course, where m- most of the truth is. I wish personally that the thank you for your service, which I do think a lot of times is genuine, um, is often genuine. I wish that were the start of the conversation and not the end of the conversation. Yeah, Melissa, were... I'm sorry, Brian, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's OK. Just to finish up, I, I feel like the next thing should be. And then what was your service? What did you do? And then. Well, then you actually get to something more interesting. Oh, I was a soldier in Bakuba, or I, w- I was a sailor in the Gulf, or I did this or that. And then maybe with these stories is how we start to bridge some of this. And Melissa, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about. Be- because do you think this, the thank you for your service thing, kind of lets those of us who have not served off the hook a bit? And we're not all that interested in the story behind that or or the experience when you came back, because some of that falls back on us. What do you think? Absolutely. No, I, I could not agree more. Um, thank you for your service often feels trite. Um, I personally still never really know how to respond to it. Uh, I appreciate when it is a conversation starter. I appreciate when I'm able to share what it's like uh, to not just be downrange, to, uh, to be a woman, to be a woman in command and be around mostly male troops. Uh, I love sharing those stories. And uh, when I get those incredulous looks from people, when they 
look at someone like me and they think, wow, I've never even met someone in the military, let alone a woman, let alone uh, myself. I'm a woman of color uh, who was an officer in the Army. Uh, they're, they're usually um, a bit taken aback, and I like to use that as an opportunity to share that very real and human experience that I had um, serving in the military. Uh, let's talk to some of our veterans on the line here, to Anne in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for waiting. What are you thinking about? Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I completely agree with where Brian was going on and and the fact that they say thank you for your service, but they never take the conversation beyond that. And I would love to tell more about my service and what I did. Um, I think it's it's definitely challenging. Um, you, I, you ask about do does anyone really know um, about my about a serve, being a service member or having served? And I think very very few do. In fact, it's really only other veterans that do. Um, but the interest also doesn't seem to be there. So, I mean, it's, it's sad. I know I've taught my children that, you know, how to, how to respond to vets and to always ask about where they were stationed. But I know that that's, they've even said, Mom, nobody else asks that. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, but you can be different. You, you can ask that because that's, that's how you get them to tell you that their stories. And so, Anne, I'm hearing you loud and clear. Where did you serve? What was your experience about? I was in public affairs. I served in Norfolk Naval at Norfolk Naval Station. Um, I served pre nine eleven, um, but I did have one of my biggest challenges is getting um, getting support as a female for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't seem to be out there um, that level of support, especially for women. And I've gone to my VA hospital, and it's hard. Um, going in there and trying to talk about it when, you know, it's a lot of these are more intimate details that you can't just put out there in the first visit. So it's um, I wish there were there was more more help out there for female service members. I'm really grateful for the mm-hmm. call, Anne. Thanks so much um, to the phones to Eric in Santa Monica, California. Hi, Eric. Thank you for waiting. Hi. Hi how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Right. What do you want to say? So, uh, well, I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was an assaultman in the infantry and served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And getting out, you know, coming home, uh, I definitely felt positive uh, experience. You know, the the VA, I I utilized the GI Bill. The the school was helpful, everything. But I think there's a huge disconnect um, between... Uh, I guess you can say people and really understanding what services. And I think that everybody in today's society, we don't appreciate what we have. And we a lot of times think of, you know, what are my rights, you know, but never what are my responsibilities. And, you know, what we have, whether you agree with the war or not, um, and even if it's not necessarily, say, directly, you know, no, it, it's not like the Taliban was, you know, invading our country in a sense, even though, I mean, we were attacked. Um, there's this sense of, you know, I just have what I have and not knowing why. You, you know what I mean? It's been hundreds of years of people, you know, sacrificing things to be able to have the society we do have. And I think we've lost that as a society, as, an, as a community. Eric, um, is that what you mean? When, I thought you used an interesting phrase there. You said the responsibility of fighting for them, for us, we who are not in the military. Is that what you mean? No, not, not necessarily specifically fighting. It could be civil service, community service, but giving back. Uh, I think we're very quick to... You know, this is my right, this is my right, this is my right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but when it comes time to give back, you know, where are those responsibilities in that sense? Um, and, and, you know, I served in the capacity, you know, being on a front line, like, you know, the tip of the spear, and that's not for everybody. And I get that, but it's also, you, you know, I think as a society, not pushing mandatory military service because it would drop the morale. If people are there that do not want to be there, it, it you know it's harmful. But something where look, you are a part of this greater. Uh, I don't know. I, 
want to be there with. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, I, it, it can choose. Here's the thing, Eric. I don't want to miss what you said earlier. We will get to this. I, I want to ask both, our, both of our guests about this idea of mandatory service. But, Brian, I thought it was interesting that uh, Eric says he hears a lot of talk about rights, but not a lot of talk about the responsibility, right, of fighting for those rights, which is part of what the military contributes to. What do you hear in that? Yeah, I, I think this... Um this idea of of national service um, that you are getting to, I, I, I'm afraid sometimes. I guess I, I I tend to agree with Eric a little bit that when um, when we focus a lot on well, I mean, this is a show, right? Flyovers about identity, right? Right. Identity is is about the person and how I am seen. Uh, based upon my race or my gender or my religion or any of these other kind of things. But identity can sometimes be at odds with service because service, especially in the military, is about getting rid of your identity and picking up another one. Mm. And I'm not just, um, you know, whoever I am based upon these attributes. I am also a soldier. I'm also a Marine. Um, And so I'm afraid that sometimes it's, I mean, these things don't have to be at odds, but I'm afraid all too often they are. And so that's, um, I don't know. Then you end up with uh, with less service overall, and he said, like he says, um, taking less responsibility. However, wh- however that manifests itself, it certainly doesn't have to always be joining the military. Bree says from San Diego, I'm a special ops community, very small knit, mostly men. I've worked hard to make a better life for women that follow behind me, and I think th- think it's something that women are going to be able to do a lot more of in the future. Special ops, she says. And then here's Scott listening in Durham, North Carolina. He says, I just had a good friend, a career vet of Afghanistan and Iraq who came back and is another casualty of war. He died of self-inflicted gunshot wound last Sunday. I've been dealing with the range of grief. When we talk about this endless war, we don't factor in these casualties. Melissa, I think that's true. When we talk about casualties, we are often talking about battlefield casualties. What would you say about Scott's experience here? Uh, unfortunately, it's a very real reality of um, of those who come home with those invisible wounds of war, as we call it. Um, also, to highlight another um, horrifying statistic, 250% of women veterans die, or excuse me, women veterans die by suicide at a rate of 250% higher wow. than our civilian counterparts. Yes, a staggering statistic that, that's very sobering. Um, and when I think about that, when I think about those who are seeking access to VA care or to any mental health care, I think about that when you're thinking about women who have a, uh, a range of um of successes when seeking that type of PTSD uh, counseling, as uh, two of our callers who've already called in just in this hour have talked, uh, spoken to their own personal experiences. One had a wonderful experience at her local VA medical center, uh, and the other is still working toward gaining that access and, and talking about her experiences within the special ops community. Um, that scaling of successful mental health care. Uh, across the nation, across VA centers, is uh, a part of the problem. And one of the things that IAVA has been focused on this year in particular has been ensuring that women have that type of access. Uh, We launched our She Who Born the Battle campaign, which is focused on women receiving the care, especially in those VA facilities where there are gaps in care. Uh, And in terms of those who die by suicide, um, to talk to all vets, you know, 65% of our members surveyed know a post on 11 veteran who has attempted suicide and 58 percent of our members surveyed know a post on 11 veteran who has died by suicide and i include myself as one of those member respondents to that survey and so it's it's very real it's very um it's something that we take on very personally within our community and uh it's another one of those um, stories that gets buried within the statistic because i know everyone's heard the the 22 or 20 veterans actually is what the number is now um, who've died by suicide each day across all generations. But what is the civilian population doing about that in order to understand our invisible wounds and understand the experiences that we carry with us? Call here from Sebastian in Duluth, Minnesota. Hi, Sebastian. Thanks so much for waiting. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. What? Tell me what you're thinking about. Uh 
So I'm a trans veteran and still currently serving. And when I think of for Veterans Day and Veterans Weekend, a lot of times when people are thinking of supporting veterans, they're thinking of supporting the men and women in uniform, but they don't always acknowledge the people, marginalized communities that are also serving in the military and how important it is to support the people that are currently serving, especially with a lot of the media that's come up as of late. It really helps um, with our own morale and helping uh, serve better and continue to serve in our duties. So your experience has been a good one. Yes, with my organization and my unit, they have been phenomenal, although I know that's not the same story for all trans service members across the board. Really good to have your call, Sebastian. Thanks. And and good to hear your experience has has been positive. You're listening to Flyover. Uh, it's a conversation, a show through the fall about American identity in turbulent times. We felt like we had to take note of Veterans Day weekend and talk about how our idea about who we are as Americans is shaped by the fact that there was a time when many, many more of us used to serve in the military and fight in these conflicts that America was involved in. That is not the case anymore. A small fraction of us fight America's wars, and yet we have this sense of, some would say, some analysts would say, exaggerated reverence for the military, and then a real disconnect about what that day-to-day service is like and what it means to, to come home from a conflict or to be a veteran, to get out of the military. And so that's what we're zeroing in on today. And I want to hear from you. If you're in the military now or you've served recently, do you feel that Americans truly understand or appreciate what your service means? What's it like when someone comes up and says, thank you for your service? Do you feel like it's rehearsed, as one of our callers said? Is it awkward? Not quite sure what to say. Do you wonder whether they really know what they're thanking you for? Talk to me about it today. 1-83-FLYOVER-1. That's 1-833-596-8371. And on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use that hashtag, Flyover Radio. If you appreciate hearing voices from across flyover country, check out some of our past episodes at flyoverradio.org or on our podcast. We've talked about guns and religion, health care, and whether it's still possible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And you can help others find us by leaving a review of our podcast. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover. If you're getting a busy signal on the phone lines, call us back. I want to hear from you, particularly if you're active duty military, you've just gotten out, you've served in Afghanistan and Iraq. Also love to hear from the women veterans who are calling in. Thank you for that. 183-FLYOVER-1. Brian, I, I want to ask you why you think more Americans don't serve. I don't um, more American serve. I think that there's I mean, the uh, the easy answer is that there's lots of reasons, I guess. I mean, some of it's economic. Uh, some of it, I think, is cultural now. Um, I think that there's you know, this we were going to talk about national service. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, national service. I'm a big supporter of that. That doesn't mean the draft necessarily. That doesn't mean you have to serve in the military. It's not for everybody. Uh, you know, Teach for America, the Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, there's lots of ways that, um, that you could serve your country. I think one of the reasons, too, one of the maybe unexpected reasons, I think people do, uh, they kids, think of a career of what they see around them. And one of the unexpected um, repercussions of all of our rounds of base closures, we went through all of this in the 90s and early 2000s, we closed lots of military bases, and we made all these super bases that are really mostly in the South and in Texas and some places in the West. And one of your, uh, the very first caller talked about Boise and all the military there and the veterans and the VA stuff. And that used to be at towns all across the country. And now you look at some of the stats, 
um, you know, like the top 20 military communities in the country, only one of them is over a million people. That's San Diego. Mm -hmm. Most of these are like small towns, places like Colleen, Texas, um, that we would think of as off the beaten path. And if you're a kid growing up and you say, what do I want to do with my life? If you don't see veterans, if you don't see people in uniform, you just don't consider it. It's not it's not some sort of, uh, I don't know, discrimination or like some big cultural issue, except that if you're surrounded by people who are investment bankers or teachers or whatever it is, or entrepreneurs, you think to do that, but maybe you don't think about the military. Let me grab a call here from Stephen in Phoenix, Arizona, who I think is going to talk about this. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for waiting. Hi, thank you for taking my call. So one of the reasons that I joined the military was I didn't take high school very seriously, and I, you know, I was told that hey, you can better your status. I was a poor kid growing up from a poor family, and uh, they were like, "Hey, you can go to college. They'll pay for college. You'll make good money. You'll get great job training." Mm -hmm. I spent nine years in the army as a combat medic. I came out, and I wasn't qualified to do anything in healthcare. I was told I would need all the traditional education and training. I was like, I could easily sir be an EMT, like. I, I treated people with wounds, and many of my friends who got out of the military, we got the exact same story, that we're not qualified to do anything. And so a lot of us are working minimum wage jobs, trying to get the additional training we needed, and we didn't really get that economic benefit we were told we were going to get or we were promised that we were going to get when we first joined. Is that the situation that you're in right now, Stephen? You're working a, a minimum wage job and trying to get that additional I education? Yes, I'm, I'm making well, I'm making barely above minimum wage, but it's I'm very close. And I for my first job out of the military was bar backing, because that was the thing that was easy to get to and easy to qualify for. I tried applying to be an EMT. I tried uh, joining like trying to get into some sort of medical field. And like, well, you you don't have the right certifications, you don't have the right training. I was and it was frustrating because like. What are you talking about? I spent nine years doing this stuff. Yeah, I, I wonder, Melissa, in hearing what Stephen is saying here and, and what Brian said, if that's part of the reason more Americans don't serve. The economic opportunity doesn't uh, what doesn't pan out as as it's promised. And Brian added that you don't see that many people in the military, perhaps in many of these communities. What do you think? Uh, well, Brian's point is absolutely correct. Uh, in, in my capacity at IVA, I've worked with the commanders of the various services uh, recruiting commands, and they echo Brian's uh, comments, and that is they just don't have the same community uh, replicated across the country that we had before. And it's not just from the bases and the active duty side, but it's also from the veteran service organizations. Uh, Legion halls and VFW halls are, are closing all around the country as well because you just don't have enough members to support them. Their uh, members are, are aging out. They're dying out. And so um, you don't have that same little league coach and, and maybe science teacher who also was a post commander of a VFW or of an American Legion uh, that you could look up to and could talk to you about their experience in World War II or Vietnam as it was for previous generations. Um, and, and to the caller's point, uh, unfortunately, this is not a, a new story that we hear at IAVA as well. Um, I've sat in meetings with the Department of Labor with their uh, DOL Vets program where they're working toward getting more of those credentials um, across various military occupational specialties mm -hmm. so that when you leave the military, you have that portable skill set that goes with you into the labor market. But that's a slow churn. That's something that's taking years in order to develop. Um, and they've done it successfully with CDLs, with commercial driver's licenses. And for folks who are maybe 88 mics, that's a truck driver or mechanic, you know, within, within the, the Army. And so you might be able to take that skill set and take that uh, moving forward. But when it comes to um, EMTs and, and other types of uh, medical emergency personnel, um, because a lot of these things are state accreditations, that's been a slower process in order to build upon. Um, but it's a noted problem, and it's something that, at least uh, within our advocacy work here in Washington, D.C., we try to push the administration and those agencies like DOL, 
to make those uh, credentials a reality uh, for veterans, or excuse me, for newly separated veterans. Here's uh, Max on uh, from, I think, tweeting from uh, North Carolina. He says, if people claim to support and appreciate people's military service, then they should vote for politicians who properly fund the military. Dave in Stillwater, Minnesota, called to say, I'm calling as an eight-year Marine veteran. I have three degrees. I felt like my colleges promoted me as a vet. From a societal point of view, it's easy to buy the cool camel uh, camo apparel, but that's not enough. I equate it to breast cancer awareness. And to Ashley in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Ashley. What's your story with this? Hi. Yes. Um, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to uh, bring up real quick, my husband was in the Army for 15 years. Um, when he got out in July, August of 2013, um, we had two children, and my husband was prepared to to come back into a civilian um, mode, uh, back into civilian life. Um, the military did a pretty decent job helping him with that. Okay. Um, much better than 10 years or so ago. Um, but they did not really do a whole lot for for me as his spouse or his children, which on one hand, that's understandable. You know, we're, we're just the family. We're not the soldiers. <laughs> but um, it, it does affect the family. Um, having, having your soldier go away um, and be at war multiple times mm-hmm. and you're here supporting him or her, uh, it takes a toll. Um, so years later, the VA isn't there to help us in any way, shape, or form. Um, they're there for my husband, maybe sometimes, if he can get in after months and months of waiting to get in to be seen. But there's nothing for us. Um, and after two, three years of schooling um, and my husband getting what a few years ago would have been considered decent pay, decent job we still struggle to pay those bills for the psychiatry appointments, the therapy appointments, things that I feel that the military should kind of help with, like at least give us support groups that we can go to as family members of veterans. Um, And there's been very little of that that we have found. Um, We've reached out to other people we were with and and, um, created a network that way. But I haven't found a whole lot with the military reaching out. Um, and there's very few civilians that seem to understand how difficult it is acclimating to civilian life for the entire family. Ashley, I'm glad for your call. And, and Brian, I, I want to toss this one to you because I remember when we talked last time, it was about your book, The Long Walk. And you were reckoning, I think you at the time you called it broken brain, right? You've been to these appointments that Ashley is talking about that her husband has been to. What, what can you say about that? Yeah, Ashley brings up uh, such a good point that it's, um, you know, sometimes there's this reputation that if the military wanted you to have a family, they would have issued you one. <laughs> and so um, the spouse and the children are just like, um, I don't know, this bucket of need that like is in the way somehow. Uh, instead of the key to the, I mean, that's really how the military member is able to function as if things are going well at home. And so, yeah, I mean, I was in that position and, um, you know, it took me a little while in the VA to find the right place. A, a lot of this is very, uh, you know, VA hospital to VA hospital, a lot like military units. Some are doing well, some aren't doing well. It's, you know, it's the capacity of the hospital that you're there. But I think uh, in just about every case, you can say that, um, there's always more that can be done for the family. And so often what the family receives, and, and Melissa can talk more about this in more specificity than I, but what the family receives is uh, is actually related more to what the military veterans' needs are hmm. and what they qualify for and not what the family needs as a whole. And, and I know in, in my experience uh, that the family support is really within the military unit. It's mm-hmm. the, well, in my case, it was mostly the wives' Uh, and the kids, you know, kind of took care of each other when the unit deployed. And then when you get out of the military, you don't have that unit. But guess what? All of the fallout from the military members' service, all of the 
the struggles with coming home. Now the family has to deal with the worst parts of all of that, but they don't have the unit there for support anymore. I mean, this is what happened, Brian, with your wife, right? When you came back and realized ultimately that you had a traumatic brain injury, a lot of this responsibility for helping you with that and getting you to these appointments fell on your wife, didn't it? Yes, I married someone who is far more loyal and patient than I deserve. And 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 she helped me through things when I didn't even realize that I needed the help through them. Um, but But still, all of that stuff was happening because I qualified for certain things at the VA, not because, to, to reflect again Ashley's point, not because the VA was trying to make sure that my wife was supported the best way that we right. could be. Hey, Melissa, what would you say about that? Yeah, just to uh, dovetail on Brian's point, he's absolutely right. On the active duty side, when you have the family, the Department of Defense as a whole has finally realized after 16 years of war that family equals readiness. When the family's okay while your service member is deployed and they're taken care of by the the whole of services that uh, the base resources can provide, then your soldier is okay while they're downrange. However, that doesn't always translate when you come off of active duty and you become a veteran. Uh, Again, a big problem with the VA across the board is scalability and um, having the same services provided where they need to be. He's absolutely right in that uh, it's the veteran's care that predicates the care to the family. There are caregiver programs that are um, very robust, that give great resources to families through the VA, but that's usually for the severely wounded. That's usually for those who qualify for, um, you know, 50% or above, 80% uh, in terms of uh, disability compensation and the types of services they receive from the VA. Um, And so if you're a service member who's struggling and that has a trickle-down effect on the family, depending on what your local uh, VA uh, medical center provides, you may not be able to get that wraparound care that the entire family needs. Uh, which is why we advocate for things like supplemental care. We advocate for people to go to vet centers. We advocate for uh, if you're um, having troubles to call places like IAVA's Rapid Response Referral Program Hotline, where you can get that sort of total case management that helps both the veteran as well as their family. If you've just gotten in on our show, Fly Over Here, it's a conversation about what it says about American identity, who we are, when only a tiny fraction of us fight America's wars. It's like around 1%. Yet a lot of us feel a a reverence for the military, but kind of a disconnect about knowledge of what they do, what it means to be in the service to serve, and then what it means to live a civilian life after service. So our conversation about that, you can find the rest of the discussion when you have time on our podcast. Just search flyoverradio.org. Melissa Bryant with us today from IAVA and Brian Kastner with us. They're, They're both veterans. And Brian is the author of The Long Walk. And I'm asking you in the in the minutes that we have left, Uh, If you're in the military now, you've served recently, do you feel that Americans truly understand or appreciate what that service means? Do you get thanked for your service? What's that like? 183-FLYOVER-1 to Jude in North Carolina. Hi, Jude. You work at the VA. Is that right? I work at the VA Mental Health and Substance Use. And to that question, my dad was a career military, uh, Air Force, Army, World War II, actually. I see so many different vets over the last 10 years, and some are really traumatized, as we know, by combat. And uh, you you just have to not make assumptions about going up to a veteran and saying thank you. I tend to say that, but not everybody is ready to hear that. It's Mm -hmm. a complicated issue for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want to echo what Melissa and Brian have said about services for the family. We are there's so much demand and so little supply. We get it a little bit better corrected uh, or done right with PTSD treatment with combat. Even there, there's a lot of gaps. But when you're talking about different types of trauma issues, be it military sexual trauma, um, you know, a a superior that has harassed you, um, other types of trauma, 
it's it's a drop in the bucket what the need is and the attention for veterans and their family and, and it's frustrating and you do you have a an idea about why it is that the need is so great and the funding doesn't meet the need if we are as grateful of a nation as we say we are for this service well, I do see a lot of money spent in the VA for different things. Um, I think the model of having these uh, hub site VAs, you know, in North Carolina, there's uh, four major VAs um, and a bunch of satellite sites. And people want to go where they know the care is good. And just like Melissa mentioned and Brian, there's great variability in what each uh, hospital and community clinic does. Um, so there might be one, you know, within an hour of where you live, but are they really equipped giving you the level of services you actually need? Right. And that's the big key. There's evidence-based therapies, but they're not always available in the closest uh, clinic available. Jude, good, good, really good to have your call. Brian, I, I just, in the minute and a half that we have left, I, I'm interested in how you'd answer that question. We're grateful, but but we don't meet the needs. Why? I, sometimes I feel like this is uh, one of those buckets that has a hole in the bottom, and we could we could always spend more. Uh, and like Jude says, she sees a lot of money spent. That doesn't mean it's always spent um, in the best possible way. So I guess I'm actually I'm actually somewhat hopeful that uh, that we're uh, we're getting a lot smarter on this than you know when I came home ten years ago. And we're also recognizing that there's not just post traumatic stress disorder. There's also post traumatic growth and um, you know, that there's more to veterans than either that hero or victim dynamic that I talked about. I'm really glad you mentioned that. I've been reading about the post-traumatic growth. Brian, good to talk to you again. I look forward to the book coming out in March. Thank you. Thank you. And Melissa Bryant from IAVA, thanks for the work you do, Melissa, and thanks very much for, for being part of the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Our producers for Flyover are Marquita Fornoff, Elizabeth Shockman, Suzanne Pico, Jeff Jones with help this week from Julia Franz. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Joffrey Wilson composed our theme music. And thanks so much for listening to Flyover from NPR News.